I'm Matt Mandel, and you're listening to Something to Consider, the podcast where I sit down and talk to today's most interesting thinkers, innovators, and leaders about their work. Today, I spoke with Massimo Pellucci, professor of philosophy at City College. While it's usually impressive to meet an expert in a single field, Professor Pellucci has published work in a wide variety of fields, including genetics, evolutionary theory, philosophy of science, and most recently, Stoicism. In this conversation, we focus on his work on Stoicism and his new book, How to Be a Stoic. Though Stoicism is a term that gets thrown around a lot, the popular conception of Stoicism is remarkably different from the view of actual Stoics, like Professor Pellucci. Throughout the conversation, we discuss what exactly Stoicism is, how it can help anyone lead a better life, and how to implement Stoic lessons in one's life. Professor Pellucci, thank you so much for joining me today. Absolutely, it's a pleasure. So I want to focus today on your work on Stoicism, and you know I should note that you are a professional philosopher, but most professional philosophers don't have a degree in science, let alone a PhD, let alone two PhDs in science. Uh, <laughs> can you talk right. a bit about how you went from being a very overqualified scientist to a professional philosopher? Uh, it was the result of a midlife crisis. Uh, <laughs> so it's... It, uh, I, I was an evolutionary biologist for about you know a little more than 20 years, and uh, then at some point I started figuring out that um, I was beginning to coast. So I was beginning to do the same kind of things, which I was good at, but it wasn't exciting anymore. And so I, this is not unusual in a scientist's career. Um, often people uh, get to the point where they feel like they need to change direction, do something else. The difference is that most people stay within the broad field. So they move from you know, evolutionary biology to ecology or to molecular biology or something like that, or even within you know, to different areas within the same field. Uh, in my case, uh, turns out that um, uh, there was a serendipitous thing. Uh, the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, where I was staying at the time, I was a faculty at the time, uh, hired a brilliant young philosopher of science, Jonathan Kaplan, and Jonathan looked me up because he had defended his thesis, um, his PhD thesis at Stanford on gene-environment interactions, which is what I was working on as a biologist. Uh, and so he had cited my work. Uh, he looked me up. We got together for coffee. We hit it off very well. We became friends. And um, we started collaborating. And uh, we wrote together a number of articles, you know, papers in philosophy of science. And I kind of thought, oh, you know, this is a really good thing to do. Uh, it's it's fun, it's interesting, it's novel for me. Um, but I didn't want to do that as a biologist playing philosopher, so to speak. Hmm. So I decided at one point to go back to the to a PhD program in philosophy. Jonathan, in fact, agreed to be my advisor. And uh, several years later, I defended my thesis, which was eventually published by the University of Chicago Press. And I gradually, it didn't happen overnight, of course, but I gradually moved toward philosophy. I started publishing more papers in philosophy. And uh, at some point when I moved to New York, uh, City University of New York made me an offer as a, as a professional philosopher. And this was only like eight years ago. Wow, that's, uh, that's crazy. Did you have any <laughs> background in philosophy before? Like, was that an interest growing up at all? Or Yeah, it was an interest. Yeah, it was an interest in growing up. First of all, I grew up in, in Italy. And um, uh, there, philosophy is mandatory uh, uh, subject of study in high school. So I took three years of philosophy in high school and, and I loved it. Um, but then after that, as a science, even as a undergraduate uh, student in the sciences, I always maintained an interest in philosophy and in particular in philosophy of science. So I kept reading, uh, you know, the classics, Popper, um, uh, Feyerabend, and all these people. And uh, so it, yeah, it's always been a sort of a background interest, but I really honestly never thought this was going to become my a second career. But, you know, life is funny like that. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, and so eight years ago, you become a professional philosopher. And then right. about four years ago, you became interested in stoicism, right? Yeah, almost fine now. Yeah, that's right. So that one also was in part of the result of, a, of the same process, um, but at a different level. So as I mentioned, uh, this was, uh, you know, my move to philosophy was the result that in part at least sort of triggered by a sort of a Mild midlife, midlife crisis, not like <laughs> I was, uh, you know, uh, deciding to, you know, to, to buy a sports car and, right. and, and things like that. Um, it was just like a sort of a moment of pause and reflection on what I wanted to do. 
Well, if you pause, if, pause and reflect, and in the same time you're studying philosophy, uh, you're almost inevitably are going to start pausing and reflecting not just about your career, but your life in general. And, uh, you know, I grew up as a Catholic, uh, but I abandoned the church when I was in, uh, you know, my teenager, teenage years. Uh, and then after that, um, I considered myself a psychohumanist. That worked out fine for several decades, but psychohumanism has always struck me more as a sort of a wish list of things that I agreed with than an actual coherent philosophy. Hmm. Uh, in fact, if you look up, uh, you know, the, the, the standard approach to psychohumanism is to look at one of the several editions of the psychohumanist uh, manifesto. And um, the psychohumanist manifesto, manifesto is just a, a declaration of principles, but it really does read like a laundry list. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's a laundry list that I agree with, uh, but nonetheless, it doesn't really make for much of a coherent philosophy. And so that kind of thing never bothered me before. And once, but once I studied, started studying philosophy, it, it really began, began to sort of say, well, wait a minute, maybe I need something a little bit more substantial. And very closely, I got to the idea that that, that more substantial thing had to be somewhere in the neighborhood of what philosophers call virtue ethics. Virtue ethics is a type of moral you know, framework, ethical framework that um, focuses on, on asking why, what is the, what are the most important things in life? What, what should you be doing in life? And the answer tends to be uh, around the idea that uh, you want to be a virtuous person, meaning, you know, practicing sort of some, some of, one or another or a group of, of, of virtues that make your character better, that improve you as a person over time. Now, when you get interested in virtue ethics, the first stop usually is Aristotle. So I started using Aristotle, uh, reading Aristotle, and uh, it was interesting, but it didn't really click with me as a sort of a broad philosophy of life. Um, then the second stop usually is Epicurus, and so I read Epicurus as well, and he also was saying a lot of interesting things, but it didn't quite make me go, wow, this is, this is really what I want to do. Um, and then, so I was in that period, and uh, on my Twitter feed, I saw this thing that said, uh, help us celebrate Stoic Week. And I said, what the hell is Stoic Week, and why does anybody want to celebrate it? Uh, but I was curious, because I, I, I knew that Stoic, Stoicism is also a type of virtue ethics. So I said, you know what, let's take a look. And sure enough, I downloaded their, their manual, did some readings and some exercises uh, for a week um, following Stoic philosophy. And at the end of that week, I thought, wow, this really is interesting. It really seems to click. So I committed to do it for another couple of months and then after that for another year. And now we're here talking about it several years later. Wow. I, that has to be like the most positive experience anyone's had on Twitter ever. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> I, I think that's interesting that especially like later in life, you deliberately chose to adopt a kind of new worldview. Most people don't really deliberately choose their worldview at all, I don't think. You kind of inherit it from your parents or your community. And even if you do change your worldview, usually it comes earlier in life. Like you said, like you left the church and you decided to become a secular humanist. Can you talk a bit about the experience of choosing to take on a new ethical and metaphysical doctrine? Well, yeah, so you're, you're absolutely right. Most people don't don't even question whatever philosophy of life they have been brought up with. And, uh, and I think, by the way, that every religion is, in fact, also a philosophy of life. Right. A philosophy of life has two components, typically. Uh, it's got a metaphysics and an ethics. The metaphysics gives you some kind of account of how the world works. And the ethics, of course, gives you an account of how you should behave within that world, right? So if you're a Christian, you know, the metaphysics, of course, includes the existence of a supernatural uh, entity that created the world and that uh, has uh, given us some kind of you know, general guidance on how to do it, to, to live. And then the, the ethics is the details of this guidance, right? You, whether it is the Ten Commandments or, or the sayings of Jesus in the Gospels or whatever it is. Now, uh, you're right that, that very often people either don't question what they grew up with in this sense, or if they do, it's because of an early life crisis, typically when you're a teenager. Sometimes it happens later. Uh, if there is a you know, dramatic event, a lot of people question their philosophy of life or started examining their philosophy of life immediately after the 9-11 attacks, for instance, in the United States. Some of them turned secular and some of them actually um, turned religious. You know, it, it, it kind of went either way. 
Uh, but so a traumatic event also can do that. In my case, it was nothing traumatic <laughs> and it was lady life. So it's, it's, it's pretty, it is pretty unusual. What triggered it was this general sense of malaise about what I was going and, and you know, not having any particular uh, direction in, in my life at that point, coupled with the fact that if you start studying philosophy, as I said, you know, the first course that I, that I took in, uh, as a graduate student in philosophy was on ethics and the second was on Plato. And you can't, you just can't start reading about ethics and Plato and not begin to question uh, what it is that you're doing, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, that said, I would actually argue that people should, at least occasionally in their lives, um, you know, take a look at what they're doing and, and, and what kind of sort of moral compass uh, or, or, or general philosophy they're following. Uh, sometimes that questioning just ends up in confirming what you have already been doing. You know, if there's plenty of people who are uh, even up on, on reflection, they're perfectly happy with whatever it is that they grew up with. And that's fine. Uh, but it may not be the case. It may be the case that you might uh, explore something else and, and, and take some time to take a look at different options as I, as I did. In fact, uh, interestingly, that we're talking about this because uh, with two colleagues of mine, uh, Sky Cleary um, and Dan Kaufman, who are both philosophers, uh, we are just about to finish a collection, uh, you know, to edit a collection of um, essays for the general public, which is going to be published uh, by um, Vintage uh, next year, Vintage Press next year. And the collection is about how to choose a philosophy of life. Uh, it's essentially 14 chapters, each one written by a different person who has been living a particular philosophy. Uh, and each one of us uh, talks about what the philosophy is and the impact that it has had on, on his or her life. So you'll see it's a book that covers a lot of religions. There is Judaism, Christianity, Islam, um, uh, you know, then, then approaches that are not quite religious, but they're partially religious, like Buddhism or Taoism and things like that. Uh, and then completely secular philosophies, such as existentialism, uh, secular humanism, stoicism, and so on and so forth. So I hope that that's going to be useful for people. Again, not necessarily, you know, the idea is not to convert anybody. It's just to help people who want to reflect and, and think a little more carefully about, after all, uh, one of the most important aspects of their life um, and, uh, and get some help in doing that. Do you guys find anyone who's a Kantian uh, to talk about living like a Kantian? <laughs> No, uh, we actually, we honestly didn't even think of Kantianism as a philosophy of life necessarily. I mean, it is an approach to ethics, of course, just like utilitarianism is an approach to ethics. But as I said before, in philosophy of life really has two components, the ethics and also a metaphysics. Sure. And, and right, so both Kantianism and, and utilitarianism don't really come as a, with a metaphysics. They can be coupled with a metaphysics, right? And then it, they do be, they do become part of a philosophy of life. So we figured that you know Kantianism, of course, is a type of deontological ethics. So it's a it's a duty based ethics, and we do have several examples of duty based ethics in, in the book. Um, we also have examples of um, people who have adopted a utilitarian perspective uh, within their broader philosophy of life, such as such as pragmatism or, or secular humanism or something like that. Right. Yeah, the, the point about uh, the distinction between like a philosophy of life and an ethical theory is well taken. I think it's interesting, though, that there are, there are a lot of like self-professed utilitarians who go around trying to maximize utility, and there are a lot of self-professed virtue eth ethicists who try and improve their character. And you meet very few Kantians who claim to like actually check the categorical imperative every time they act. That's right. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, uh, uh, among professional philosophers, we actually have some data, and it turns out that uh, those three uh, frameworks are about equally represented. I think a slight majority of uh, philosophers, professional moral philosophers, uh, is utilitarian, followed by Kantians, and then by virtuosos. But it's like you know, 32, 33 percent versus right. 30 percent, or something like that. You know? So now I want to like dig into Stoicism and talk about like the actual uh, philosophy. I think before we do that, it makes more sense to talk about what Stoicism isn't than to talk about what it is. <laughs> yeah. Because it, it's a word that gets thrown around a lot. And I think a lot of people think that they might know what it means, uh, but there's definitely different senses and usages of the word. Um, yeah. So, for example, Spock from Star Trek is often held up as, you know, like the paradigm case of a Stoic. Uh, right. I, I think from the your book, How to Be a Stoic, uh, you don't think that he is the best case of a Stoic. 
Can you explain why the popular notion of stoicism isn't what you're talking about? Yeah, the, the Spock is definitely not a good a good representation of stoicism. In fact, it is a good representation of the misunderstandings about stoicism. And I say that as a Trekkie, and you know, Spock is my favorite character on Star Trek. <laughs> um, but um, there, and there is also, by the way, an historical reason apparently for for this misunderstanding. That is, Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek, actually designed the character of Spock as a stoic. Uh, except that Gene Roddenberry apparently did not have a good grasp of what Stoicism was about. Oh, that's about. so funny. I know. And, uh, and so it kind of, you know, it, it reinforced a stereotype that was already there. The stereotype in question is that Stoicism is about going through life with a stiff upper lip and, and, and that it is about suppressing emotions. And there are reasons why there's, you know, stereotypes often are, are rooted in some kind of half-truth. Uh, but unfortunately, they distort the, the truth, and and then they come out as uh, sort of oversimplification. So, it is true that stoicism is a philosophy in a sense that that uh, teaches endurance. Right. I mean, a lot of this, the ancient Stoics uh, were pretty tough people, uh, and in fact, stoicism, Buddhism, uh, and a number of other philosophies that came out about that times. Buddhism is only about a couple of centuries older than stoicism. Uh, one can argue that they originated in response to pretty tough times of major upheaval uh, when people had no control over what was going on in the world in the big picture and they somehow you know, had to deal with, with life in, in some way. So there is a component of endurance in stoicism, but it's not the major thing. It's not the major uh, part of it. And it's certainly not the case that stoics are about um, suppressing emotions, although there too there is a, a um, underlying sort of half-truth, which is that the Stoics made a distinction between what they call the pathos and the eupatheiai. The pathos are the negative, unhealthy emotions. In fact, the, the term pathos in Greek is the root of the modern word pathology in, in, in English. So it's, it's, it's a bad thing to have a pathology. It's not a good thing. And the eupatheiai, on the other hand, eupatheiai, on the other hand, were the positive emotions, the healthy emotions. So what the Stoics and, uh, thought is that we should try to train ourselves through life to move, to shift our emotional spectrum away from the pathos, away from the unhealthy emotions such as anger, fear, and hatred, and toward cultivating, positively cultivating the good emotions, the healthy emotions such as love, joy, sense of justice, and things like that. So, so there are some reasons why for the misunderstandings, but I think it's important to keep in mind that no, stoicism is not about suppressing emotion and it's not about going through life with a stiff upper Yeah, I, I think that's helpful. And I think a lot of people are turned off from stoicism because of that misconception of, I don't want to just be like, you know, emotionally flat and yeah. you know, like yeah. any different from like a stone or something like that. Exactly. And that's actually, quite frankly, that, that was my initial reaction when I saw that tweet. I thought, why the hell, why on earth would anybody want to uh, celebrate stoicism, which is about you know suppressing emotions and uh, and going through life with a proper life. Then I downloaded the manual because I was curious enough, and I said, "Oh, wait a minute! That turns out it's not nothing like that." So I think you've touched on some aspects of stoicism, but now it might be helpful just to get a high-level summary of the Stoic worldview on the table. Yeah. So stoicism is a, a Greek-Roman philosophy that originated around 300 BCE in, in Athens. The, the founder was a guy named you know, Sitium, who was actually a merchant, uh, and he lost everything in a shipwreck, and he, he, he came to Athens, uh, and he started reading books, of all, all things. He, he entered into a bookshop, and uh, he started reading uh, memorabilia by Xenophon, which is about the life of Socrates. And he asked, apparently, the, the bookseller, you know, where can I find me one of these people, meaning philosophers? And uh, the bookseller said, well, there's one walking just in the streets right now. And the guy was uh, Cratus the Cynic, one of the major philosophers in Athens. And uh, Zeno started studying with uh, Cratus, and then he started with he studied with a number of other philosophers in Athens. And at some point, he felt like he had new ideas and he could uh, establish his own school. The basic idea of Stoicism is uh, that the way to live a eudaimonic life, a eudaimonic life is a genetic, genetic Greek term for a good life, a life worth living. Um, it's often translated as happiness, but it doesn't really translate well in that, in that sense because it's not about happy feelings or something like that. It's about you know, the kind of life that you get to the end of it and you look back and you say, yeah, that was worth it. That was, that was 
reasonably well done. Right? You're not ashamed of the kind of life that you, that you live. Um, now, for the Stoics, a life worth living is a life of virtue. And in particular, is a life of practicing four virtues. And these are practical wisdom, courage, justice, and temperance. Practical wisdom is the knowledge of good and evil. It's essentially what guides you as a, as a moral compass throughout your life. It's like you want to always keep in mind that certain things are good for you and other things are not good for you, uh, in, a, in an ethical sense, in a moral sense. Courage is not just physical courage, but the, the courage to stand up for the right thing. Justice is what tells you what the right thing is. Justice has to do with dealing with other people. Uh, so how you should be behaving with other people. Uh, how is it that, you know, what does it mean to treat other people fairly and, and, uh, as human beings? And then uh, temperance is about acting always in, in right measure, not, not overdoing things and not underdoing things, you know, putting always the right effort and the right amount of uh, energy and, and resources into whatever it is that you're doing. The Stoics thought that if you do that, you pretty much are going to go through life in a way that you're never going to be ashamed of anything and you're going to be actually helping uh, the human cosmopolis. The, the, the Stoics were cosmopolitan. They were among the first cosmopolitan uh, philosophers. And so they thought that uh, we're all in the same boat together on this planet and therefore that we have an ethical duty to help every other human being that comes our way or that we cross paths with, regardless of who he or she is, regardless of whether we're friends or relatives or countrymen or whatever it is. Uh, and I like that part of, of Stoicism. It's, it's a cosmopolitan philosophy. Um, the Stoics also made a promise, especially the late, so-called late Stoics, the people, the Stoics that um, that uh, taught and wrote in Rome. Uh, after a little bit, um, Stoicism moved from Athens to Rome, and so most of the major Stoics that we know of, uh, like Seneca, Epictetus, and Marcus Aurelius, actually were Roman Stoics. And the Roman Stoics made a promise. They said, not only it's you know, going through life by practicing the four virtues is just is the right thing to do. It's, it's, a, it's the rational thing to do, they thought. It's a, it's a reasonable thing to do. It also happens to have a particularly interesting side effect. Uh, you will come closer and closer to ataraxia. Ataraxia is the Greek word for serenity, for, for uh, tranquility of mind. You're going to be fine in your life. You're going to be uh, you know, serene and, and happy in sort of the more... Uh, psychological sense of the situation, precisely because you know that you're always going to be doing the right thing, or at least as much as it's possible, it's possible you're going to be doing the right thing. So you, essentially, we would say today, your conscience is, is at peace. And, and you can't, when your conscience is at peace, then, then you're going to live a good life. All right. Yeah, that's, that's a lot to think about. So maybe let's start with... Um, <laughs> so one thing that I'm curious about, and this actually, I think, links up well with bringing Stoicism from ancient times to today, is the claim about ataraxia and the thought it'll actually bring you tranquility or happiness in the more conventional sense. Um, That's also somewhat connected to modern innovations in like cognitive behavioral therapy and things like that, where we actually have empirical methods for testing what brings people inner peace. Uh, Can you talk a bit about how stoicism has been like appropriated today and those kinds of uh, movements? Yeah. One of of the reasons stoicism has come back into uh, sort of, people's attention. It's never really gone away, I, I should say. But, um, you know, the, the formal Stoic schools of antiquity ended between the second and the third century, basically with the rise of Christianity. And then Stoicism did influence a lot of philosophers, including a lot of Christian philosophers. But it really was kind of under the radar for most of that time. Uh, it came back in the second part of the 20th century. Uh, and for a variety of reasons, one of these reasons is, in fact, uh, that um, Cognitive behavioral therapy, rational emotive behavioral therapy, logotherapy, a number of, of these modern approaches to psychotherapy uh, are in fact inspired uh, sometimes directly uh, by stoic techniques, right? especially CBT and REBT are, you know, the, the, their originators back in the late 50s and early 60s were actually directly inspired by Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius and, and things like people like that. So uh, now, of course, then, then these psychotherapies developed on scientific grounds, they are evidence-based, they, they, they work, uh, there's very good empirical evidence that they work. But a lot of their fundamental techniques are really just improvements or modifications of exercises that the Stoics were doing themselves. Uh, so for instance, um, 
uh, a, a typical stoic exercise uh, is journaling. Is, is you know, the, the idea of doing a, every night before going to bed, I do a, what it's called a philosophical journal, meaning that I sit down uh, and I ask myself uh, three questions and I, and I write them down in sort of a diary. And I ask myself, what did I do wrong? Uh, not, not, not in order to regret it or beat myself up, but so that I can learn from my own mistakes. Uh, what did I do right? Uh, that is, uh, you can to, to learn from the things, the good things that I did, not just from the bad ones, because the overall goal is to shift the balance as much as possible away from the mistakes and toward the positive things. And then the third one is what remains to be done, uh, which has to do with you know, what kind of what, what aspects of my character or what kind of behaviors do I need to work on? Um, this kind of journal or of dialing, uh, uh, journaling, sorry, um, is found directly in Epictetus and in Seneca. They both explicitly tell you how to do it, and it is a major modern technique. It's there's empirical evidence that it actually does work. It makes you more reflective and changes your behavior over over time. So, so there are connections, direct connections between uh, Stoic philosophy and, and psychotherapy. Now that said. Stoic philosophy, of course, is much more than just a, number, a bunch of techniques. The techniques can be used independently of the philosophy, of course. They work, period. As I said, you know, just because you're going to a CBT session, that doesn't mean that doesn't make you a Stoic. Um, and that is uh, very similar to, uh, let's say, somebody who does meditation, and that doesn't make him a Buddhist. Right. Uh, right. So meditation is useful. And, you know, if you want to practice, you don't have to embrace Buddhist philosophy. But if you do embrace Buddhist philosophy, then you've got a broader framework, which has to do with metaphysics and ethics. But it also comes with exercises and pra- practices such as meditation. So, yeah, that's that's a good point that the two kind of come apart. Um, I thought it was interesting to know that there is that empirical backing and that's part of yeah. like the renewed interest in stoicism. But now, yeah. I guess, getting to like the more philosophical nature of stoicism you say that these four virtues are a key component to the Stoic worldview. And the thought is that if you are courageous and temperate and uh, practically wise and just, then you will live a life that's free from shame, the kind of life that at the end of it, you'll be like, yeah, that was a good life. Yeah, that's right. So I and I think there's like a, a classic archetype in this conversation, especially like in ancient Greece of like Calicles or Thrasymachus, uh, the character who says, well, what if I'm just not concerned with you know, your notion of the good life? What if like your standards of shame and uh, pride don't apply to me? I'm not interested in living that kind of life. What does the Stoic have to say to a person like that? Right. So there's, there are two things actually that are embedded into that question. First of all is, you know, what if I'm not interested in that kind of life period? And the other one, the second one more specific is, well, what if your view of virtue is not, you know, is not the one that I adopt? Those are different questions because there can be re- legitimate discussion about what counts as a virtuous behavior or not. And I think we should bracket that maybe for a minute. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll get to that in a minute. But th- let's let's answer first the, the broad question, which is, you know, what if I'm just not interested in doing this kind of thing? You know, I think that um, I, a good life is a life of uh, sheer physical pleasure uh, or, or maybe it's a life of um, when I actually inflict pain on others. And who, are, who are you to tell me that that's the wrong thing? Right. Um, well, that's a classic question, of course, that comes that goes back all the way to at, at least Socrates. Um, and you know, Socrates addresses that, for instance, in, in at least two dialogues, the, the Republic, most famously, uh, but also in the Eutidemus, which actually was um, highly influential in the Stoics. And the answer there is, look, my friend, these are um, they're not these are not laws of nature, meaning you know, it's nothing that that, that prohibits you from living a life of just physical pleasure uh, or uh, or a life of you know, inflicting pain on, uh, on others. But the Stoics thought that human, it's human nature itself that discourages you from doing that sort of stuff. They thought that human nature is, is essentially boils down to two components. One, we're, we're fundamentally social. That is, although we can survive uh, under you know, in extreme circumstances on our own, we actually thrive only in society. And two, that we're capable of reason. Unlike any other animal on earth, we're capable of articulating both to ourselves and to others why we do certain things and, and, and reflect on it and, and change our uh, behavior and so on and so forth. So they thought if it is true that human beings are fundamentally social and fundamentally rational, then it turns out that a life, uh, an unvirtuous life, a life of you know pure pleasure or inflicting other people's uh, uh, 
pain on other, on other people is in fact irrational. And so it's not good. You're, you're just not going to have a good life. You think you are, um, but you're, you're mistaken about it. You are in fact sick, as it, as it turns out. You suffer from a particular kind of disease, uh, which the ancient uh, Greeks called amatia, A-M-A-T-H-I-A. And that's lack of wisdom. You just don't get it, my friend, essentially. Um, you know, you're, now, um, they all, of course, had empirical evidence of this thing. I mean, they thought, look, there's, it's, it's, uh, it's clear to the observation, and there is actually a significant amount of uh, systematic research today to back, to back up this point, that if you spend your life just going after pleasures, there's nothing in, intrinsically wrong with, with pleasure itself. The Stoics were not ascetics. You know, they were not. Uh, averse to pleasure. They just didn't think that that was the major goal of life. And uh, if you do think that's a major goal of life, well, you know what? You're going to, empirically speaking, you're going to alienate a lot of other people. Uh, they're going to think you're shallow. They're going to think that you're not a particularly good person. You tend to be selfish because you always want to go after pleasures and so on and so forth. And therefore, um, you're not really going to live a good life. You may have pleasures, but but you're going to be missing a lot in terms of you know, social interactions and uh, uh, you know, sort of general purpose of what, we, what you're doing. So their bet was that if you go that way, you are not going to get, you're not likely to get to the end of your life and say, yeah, that was that was actually worth uh, living. Now, the other op option, let's say, uh, one of the other options, I should say, which is, you know, oh, I decide to live life as, you know, inflicting pain on others. Well, that, my friend, is just not going to be working out very well because other people are going to stop you. <laughs> you know, other people have other other opinions about this kind of life, and you're, they're just simply going to lock you up um, as soon as they get a chance. So, so they thought that there is something natural, and there, again, there is modern empirical evidence about this. There's something natural about living a pro, what what we today call a pro-social life. Modern anthropologists, modern psychologists, and, and modern primatologists actually are showing that uh, it's not just human beings; it's also a lot of other social primates that tend to act altruistically and tend to be cooperative and pro-social uh, with members of their group because that makes for a better life for themselves. The Stoics, incidentally, didn't draw a sharp distinction between altruism and selfishness, uh, as most of us do today. They thought that if, if I improve myself, then I'm automatically improving the world at large. I'm making... I'm making world a better place to live and if i help other people then i'm automatically improving my own life because the world is a better place to live and therefore i live better so they really rejected this kind of this very basic simplistic dichotomy between um, selfishness and, and, and altruism. now to the second part of your question which is yeah but what if you have the wrong conception of virtue that's a that's a good question and, and the stoics you know the stoics were uh, very much empirically minded uh, they didn't think that they had the last word on things. And Seneca, there's a beautiful uh, passage in one of Seneca's letters where he says, first of all, uh, he's, he's, he's talking to, a, uh, to his friend Lucilius, and he says, you know, first of all, remember that our uh, ones that, that came before us are not our masters. They're just our uh, advisors. They're our teachers, but not our masters. So we're not bound by, you know, it, it's not the law that just because Seneca said something or Zeno said something, then it goes. This is not a religion. Uh, and also, he said, uh, we don't have all the knowledge in the world. Future generations will discover new things. And if that's the case, then it's reasonable to adjust our opinions accordingly. So there is an inherent open-mindedness about Stoic philosophy, which as a scientist, I, I really appreciate. Now, that said, there's some modern research in the area of what is referred to often as, mo as um, uh, positive psychology that has actually looked uh, empirically at the concept of virtue at a cross-cultural level. And it turns out, interestingly, that, uh, first of all, the notion of virtue is essentially universal in, in human societies, at least in human literate societies, so, uh, any society that is advanced enough to have a system of writing. And um, not only that, but it turns out that although every society has its own set of virtues and they interpret them in a different, in, in a particular way, it turns out that there is a core of about six or seven that are present pretty much everywhere. And guess what? Four of those six or seven are the Stoic virtues, hmm. the ones I just mentioned before. Um, you know, although sometimes they're referred to by different names, but when you look at a description or how actually people 
use them. They're essentially practical wisdom, courage, justice, and temperance. Right. The remaining two, two of the remaining major ones, are sometimes called transcendence and humanity. Uh, transcendence is this idea that there is something greater than yourself that uh, you can relate to, right? And humanity is this sense that you're a member of a large community at a global level. Well, the Stoics also had both of those components. They just didn't call them virtues. I mentioned the cosmopolitanism. That's the, the humanity part. And they also thought that uh, they also had a sense of transcendence. They thought um, that the universe is uh, organized along, along rational, uh, you know, in a, in a rational way, in a rational structure. They called that the logos. And that meant that they were connected to the, to the universe at large. They were not just members of the human cosmopolis. They were also members of, you know, of the bits and pieces of the universe at large. And that made them feel like part of a bigger, bigger thing. Um, so they also had this sense of transcendence. So it's interesting to me uh, that many uh, cultures across the world and across times actually do hit on similar concepts, not quite identical. I don't want to push the, you know, the, 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 the argument too far, but, but very similar. Uh, think of it this way. Buddhism has um, a very similar kind of ethics to Stoicism, even though their metaphysics is very different. But their ethics is very similar. When this, the, the, the Buddhists talk about non-attachment and, and practicing non-attachment, and when they talk about developing right action and right uh, right speech and, and so on, those are very much the same kinds of things you would hear, although with different words from a Stoic. Or think about Christianity. Christianity is characterized ever since Thomas Aquinas, you know, arguably the major Christian theologian of the Middle Ages, if not ever. Uh, ever since uh, Thomas, um, Christianity is characterized by seven virtues. Now, four of those are the Stoic virtues, and literally in that case are the Stoic virtues because Thomas Aquinas got them straight from the Stoics. Uh, just in, he just imported them wholesale. And then he added three more typical Christian virtues of uh, hope, faith, and charity. So, so there is an argument that can be made that although, of course, there, there is room for disagreement on specific actions or specific practices, the general idea that you want to uh, mold your character in order to be pro-social, to, to, to practice some kind of justice, to be courageous about uh, going through life and so on and so forth, that, that's pretty much universal among human cultures. I think most people can get on board with the idea that, you know, there are these virtues. It, they're pretty intuitive to, you know, stand up for what's right and to treat other people well and to be able to discern right and wrong. Uh, but I think it might lead to a slightly unintuitive conclusion. So in the in your book, you talk about the example of a pickpocket taking your wallet and you reflect to yourself that you may have lost some cash and credit cards and photo ID, but that the pickpocket lost his integrity, which is a far worse right. thing to lose. And it, it's it's really unintuitive to anyone to think that the pickpocket was the person who lost more in that situation. So can you maybe like try and pump that intuition a bit more? Yeah, yeah. Uh First of all, I, I want to say that, again, it's counterintuitive, but in fact, it's found again in other traditions. I mean, when the, when the Christians say, hate the sin, but not the sinner, they're referring to something very similar. <laughs> you know, the sinner is some, somebody, somebody to actually be pitied more than, more than hated. And again, the same thing, you, you find a very similar concept in Buddhism. So although it, you, I agree with you that it's counterintuitive, it's actually the case that a lot of religions and, and philosophies have actually hit on the same, the same idea. Now... The way I usually explain or make sense of it to myself is um, by looking at um, a passage from Epictetus uh, where he says, you know, if somebody makes the wrong syllogism, right? So, so syllogism, of course, is a basic type of, type of argument. So if somebody makes the wrong syllogism, in other words, he's not reasoning well, the fault is not with the syllogism. It's, it's the problem with the person that is not reasoning well. And he very likely is not going to re realize that. He, he thinks that he's actually reasoning well. But you and I know that he's not. He's just made a bad syllogism. Okay? And it's the same with ethics, according to the Stoics. Uh, the thief, I'm sure, went home that day celebrating because he got, he got my, uh, my money and, and he probably went out for a pizza. Yeah, it wasn't <laughs> a lot of money, so it's not like he could do much more than that. Yeah. Uh, so I'm sure that he was happy and he thought that I was a sucker because I, you know, he was able to steal my, my wallet. Uh, but as far as I'm concerned from a stoic perspective, the joke is on him. 
hmm. uh, because he doesn't realize that he's actually done a bad thing um, that obviously he wouldn't want other people to do to him. He wouldn't want other people to do to his family or to his friends. So at some level, he has some kind of understanding that there's something wrong with it, but he feels entitled to it. He feels special. He feels like, you know, oh, I'm, I'm smarter or I'm faster or whatever it is. And if he wants to, to uh, think that way, that's his business. I don't, one of the fundamental stoic ideas is that you don't control other people's opinions. You only control your own opinions. Um, but he's just mistaken. According to stoic philosophy, and as I said to many others, he's just, uh, he's just mistaken. And so uh, when you look at other people that do this kind, kind of things, you should, uh, in fact, uh, pity them uh, and not not be angry with them. Now, the, the upshot of this, you know, the practical upshot is twofold, and I think it's important. On the one hand, you actually, this is helpful for you because you're not, you're less likely at least to get angry and upset and, you know, and, and get your own, uh, you know, soul, so to speak, in disharmony with the, with, the, with the universe. In other words, you're much more calm if you say to yourself, uh, oh, that guy is just mistaken. He doesn't know what he's doing, as opposed to, oh, the bastard, he got my wallet, you know, that sort of stuff. But also, uh, it engenders a more charitable view of other people. And I would, I would advance the notion that if uh, we were all a little bit more charitable with other people, this would, this would be a much better world um, than, it, than it actually is. You know, we are, especially these days, um, seems like in the last few years, we're all prone to anger and outrage, and especially online on social media. I can't believe this guy did this or that or the other. Yeah, hold on a second, slow down. Maybe there are reasons why he did that. After all, I don't know anything about that, that the guy who pickpocketed me, right? Uh, for all I know, he could be starving uh, every day, in which case, you know what, I'm glad he got my money uh, and that he was able to do something with it. Uh, or if he's not starving, maybe, you know, I don't know. I don't know anything about his, his upbringing. Maybe he had a really tough uh, situation. Maybe that's his only, you know, the only way he can figure out of you know, how to go through life. It's still not good. But, you know, who am I without knowing anything at all about this person to sort of pass judgment and, and in such a harsh way? So yeah. I think that, you know, one, one of the stoic, interesting and important stoic precepts is, is this idea. Just suspend judgment. Don't think immediately of other people in the worst possible way because you just don't know. I want to pick up on something that you mentioned there, which was what is in your control and what's out of your control and how you should relate to each of those things. Can you talk a bit about the stoic perspective on the kinds of things that we should worry ourselves about? Yeah, so th that is one of the fundamental Stoic ideas. It's uh, referred to as the dichotomy of control. Uh, Epictetus starts out his manual on how to live your life uh, with that with that notion. He says some things are under your, your your control, other things are not under your control, and you should focus on the first one and not the latter one, which sounds eminently sensible, right? Right. <laughs> um, Except, of course, that the complication comes immediately after when Epictetus actually lists the kinds of things that are under your control and the kinds of things that are not under your control. And most people find that list kind of counterintuitive, if not downright wrong. So let's let me go through some of the examples. He says uh, that our opinions and our values are under our control, our judgment are under our control. But our reputation, our wealth, our health, those are not under our control. And so one says, wait a minute, hold on a second. This surely is not right. First of all, it is the case that uh, my opinions and my values and my judgments can be influenced by others, right? Sometimes in ways that I don't actually even realize. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, so in what sense are they under my control? And Epictetus will respond, well, because the buck stops with you if it's your judgments. Yes, they may be influenced by other people. But they still are filtered by your own character, by your own way of looking at things. And if you let other people um, influence you in a way that is, uh, you know, that goes under the radar, that's just because you're not paying attention, my friend. So it's still, it's still up to you. Um, you know, you're, you're responsible for your judgments. Now, on the other side, you know, so what, is, what do you mean I'm not responsible for my body, my wealth, or my education? Surely I can eat healthy and go to the gym, for instance, and, you know, and therefore I'm, I'm obviously I'm in control of my body. But Epictetus would say, no, because then a virus is going to strike you. Well, you didn't know about viruses, but, you know, a virus or a disease is going to strike you all of a sudden and, and you lose your health, even though you work very hard at it. 
So what he meant, and the same goes for reputation, you can work on your reputation, then somebody can ruin it out of a, you know, a rumor, a malicious rumor or something like that. Um, the same goes with wealth. I can be very careful with my money, invest it you know, in a reasonable way, but then the stock market crashes and I lose everything or, you know, and so on and so forth. So what he meant was not that you cannot influence those external things. Of course you can. He was, he was not. He was not naive. I mean, he understood that you can navigate life in a certain way, but you don't completely control them. So, which means you need to develop, according to Stoic philosophy, an attitude of equanimity toward externals. Since you don't ultimately control externals, you have to just take them or leave it as they come. So today you have a you know a decent amount of money in your bank account and your your pension looks secure. Great, then be glad and be thankful for that. Tomorrow you're going to lose it. You're going to say, well, I knew I could, I could lose it. It, it was not really mine. <laughs> it and uh, you know that happens. That kind of stuff happens. It's just part of life. What am I going to do about it? Uh, getting upset about it doesn't really help because it's already done. It's outside of your control. So now what you need to do is, on the other hand, to sort of regroup and see, okay, what else can I do? What is it that I can act on? What is it that actionable? In that sense, Stoic philosophy is very pragmatic. It, the focus is always on whatever it is that you can actually do. Regret is not a Stoic value. You know, if you say, oh, you know, I, I, I did this or something that, that happened to me and it shouldn't have happened to me. It's like, well, whatever, should or shouldn't, it's not really up to you. It happened. It's the past is outside of your control. So why are you bothering, you know, thinking about it? Except with the only exception of learning from the past. Learning from the past is fine, but regretting the past is not a good idea. The same goes for the future, quite frankly, because the future also is not under your control. Again, your actions here now can influence the future for sure, you know, because you are part of the causal web of the universe. So whatever you do reverberates some level also in the future but really the only locus of your action is right here right now uh, and that is why the stoics focused essentially on what it is that you're doing now that's what's uh, sometimes called um, stoic mindfulness which is very different from the, sort of the, the buddhist version of, of the same term uh, stoic mindfulness just literally means paying attention to what it is that you're doing now because that's the only place where you can actually make a difference Changing the way you think and therefore changing the way you act as a consequence is the only thing that really truly is under your control. So I think this discussion of control and uh, things external, like not worrying about things that are completely external to your power, uh, largely influences the Stoic perspective on death, which I think is really interesting. Yes. Uh, So first, I want to clarify, do Stoics think that death itself is not a bad thing for an individual? Or is the claim that because it's outside of their control, individuals shouldn't worry about death? Uh, it's the former. Well, it's both actually, in a sense. Uh, so, at a pragmatic level, uh, yeah, you shouldn't worry about death because it's outside. Ultimately, it's outside of your control. Uh, you don't decide. You know, with very few exceptions, you don't decide when you're going to die and how. The exception being, of course, if you commit suicide. And we, we, if you want, we can talk about suicide uh, in a minute. But outside of that very specific circumstance, you don't know when you're going to die and you don't know how. Therefore, don't worry about it because it's you know it's not it's not under your control. So that's the pragmatic aspect. But they also literally thought of death as what they call a dispreferred indifferent, which is a deliciously oxymoronic phrase, <laughs> right? Yeah. Because it's like, what do you mean uh, dispreferred indifferent? It's either indifferent or it's dispreferred. Um, and similar, they, they had some, you know, the other way around, they had some, some things that are preferred indifferent. Like, for instance, wealth is a preferred indifferent. Other things being equal, you prefer it, but it's indifferent. It's indifferent in this very specific sense. It makes no difference to your moral value, to your value as a person. So being alive in and of itself doesn't make you a better person because it's what you do with your life that counts, right? So which means that conversely, losing your life is not necessarily a bad thing. It depends on how and why. What were you doing? Uh, You know, did you lose your life because... um, you were you know, fighting for the Nazi, well, then it's a good thing you, you're dead, my, my friend. Uh, you know, it's uh, it, because your life was a dispreferred indifferent at that point. It was, you were doing a net negative to the, to the universe, to, in particular to the, to the human cosmopolis. So they literally think that life and death are matters of moral indifference. We need to be clear about this. You know, it's not like 
they were going around not paying attention to uh, to things because they didn't care about dying. Of course, they preferred to be alive rather than not, but they preferred to be alive only insofar as being alive gives you a chance to be virtuous, to do something for other people, right? Which I guess naturally brings to the issue of suicide. So suicide was acceptable for the Stoics, but only under very strict circumstances. Uh, in fact, uh, Epictetus is very clear in this. There's a bit in the discourses where, when, when uh, one of his students comes uh, rush to, rushing to him and says, "Hey, your your friend, uh, you know, your dear friend is is about to commit suicide by starvation," and Epictetus says, "Okay, let's let's go and help him out. Let's let's go see what's going on." And he goes to his friend and he says, "So well, what's going on? I mean, we are we are your friends. We we can help you. Let you know. Let us let us know how can we would be helpful." And the guy said, "Well, I'm I'm dying because I said I was going to." And Epictetus says, what are you, you're a fool? What are you, stupid? You don't do that kind of thing. You, you, don't, you, don't, you don't die just because you said so. It's like, no, that, that makes no sense. There has to be good reasons. Now, the Stoics actually specify what those good reasons were. Uh, and they specified them both in their writings and also by example, because we have several examples of Stoics who actually did commit suicide. Um, one was actually, goes back uh, to the very beginning of the philosophy, Zeno of Sychum, According to Diogenes Laertius, who wrote a, a book on the, on the life of Zeno, uh, Zeno died very old, in his late 90s, apparently. And he, he in fact, died of self-imposed starvation. And the reason for that is because at that point, he was so frail, and that was it was completely useless. He, he was to others. He couldn't teach anymore. He was dependent on others. And, and he realized that there was really not much more of a way for him to be virtuous. Therefore, he said, okay, at this point, this, you know, there's nothing else for me to do, so I might as well go. Um, so that's one reason. So that's what we would – now, today, we would call – this is very relevant because today we would uh, – this would fall under the rubric of assisted suicide. Right. Um, people that are in you know, terminal diseases or they are in situations where uh, they're very old and they, they just don't, don't don't have a life that is worth living anymore. Uh, according to the Stoics, they should be allowed uh, to die. It's a question to human beings. The second major reason for committed suicide for the Stoics was for political reasons or for a ju- in general for a just cause. Uh, so, for instance, the Stoics were uh, very much politically and socially involved. Uh, there was a group of Stoic philosophers and senators in Rome uh, that it's known uh, as the Stoic, the Stoic opposition. And uh, these people actually uh, opposed the, ruling, the rules of some of the worst emperors in, human, in, in uh, Roman history, uh, beginning with Nero and going on with Vespasian and, and Domitian. And they paid a price as a result. Some of them were sent in exile. Uh, Epictetus, for instance, was sent in exile by Domitian. Uh, who kicked out all the Stoic philosophers from Rome because they were too annoying. You know, all this, this talk about virtue and talking truth to power was just not a good thing for the emperor. So he kicked everybody out. Uh, Nero killed a number of them, so they lost their lives. But um, And often the way in which this was happening uh, was that, that the, the emperor would invite you to commit suicide. Right? And that's actually what happened to Seneca. Seneca was invited to commit suicide. Now, he could have tried to escape. Lots of people did try. But he went along with it for two reasons, presumably. One, because he wanted to set an example of you know, how you live and die with, with dignity, essentially. Uh, he had been preaching all his life that, that death is a preferred indifference. So now it was, here was his chance to basically put into practice uh, what he was preaching. The other one was probably, yeah, I know, that's, you know, uh, Seneca often has a bad reputation because people say, oh, you, you know, he, he enabled uh, the Nero regime, and you know, there, there's, some, there's something to it. I mean, he, he certainly did help Nero in, early on in the regime. Uh, but then again, he was in a very, you know, basically impossible situation. I mean, you know, I would like to see you uh, to be put all of a sudden in, uh, in charge of this new emperor and, and, you, know, you, you see that there's some good that you can do. In fact, for the first five years of Nero's reign, things actually went pretty well. And then Seneca lost control, basically, of Nero later on uh, when Nero became more, more of an independent and arguably a little bit more crazy than he had been when he was, when he was young. Right? So it, it was a very difficult situation. I mean, it's, hard for, it, it's, it's easy for us to just sit here and say, ah, yeah, I would never have done that. But, you know, I don't know. I'm not so sure. 
But he, at least he, he did finish, Seneca finished his life uh, with, with being a Greek. The other reason he probably did it was to uh, not to create problems for his family, because um, the Roman approach was such that if you did commit suicide when instructed by the emperor, then your family will be spared and your, your um, and they will retain uh, their, their house and their uh, you know their wealth. Hmm. But if you didn't, if you try to escape, uh, then uh, then there will be repercussions on your family. Right. So, so there, there probably... may have been a sense of like justice towards his family involved in the decision. Correct. Correct. Exactly. Suppose, you know, I, I hear about virtues and the good life and, you know, the dichotomy of control, and I've kind of bought into the Stoke perspective. Uh, you mentioned journaling earlier. What are the other things I can do to improve my character from the Stoke perspective in my everyday life? Oh, that's an excellent question. So if people go to my um, blog, which is howtobeastoke.org, they will, they will be able to download a little handbook with 24 different exercises. Uh, 12 of those exercises are actually in the book, uh, in, which has the same title, How to Be a Stoic. And, and also, the, the practical aspect is so important that a friend of mine, uh, Greg Lopez, and I are just about to finish a new book that is devoted only to Stoic exercises, only to practice. Uh, and we have a whopping 52 of them. So, so there's a lot of things in one wow. can do. Uh, yeah, but uh, let, me, let me give you some uh, examples of some of my favorites. So we talked about the evening diary. Uh, one of my favorite exercises is uh, a series of exercises in self-deprivation. Uh, so some kind of mild self-deprivation. Things like uh, uh, fasting for a day or two, for instance. Uh, or taking a cold shower. Uh, or going out in the winter without a coat. Uh, or sleeping on a hard surface. You know, th- these kind of things. Yeah. Now, these are mild, mild kind of self-deprivation. This, we're not talking about starving yourself for a week or something like that. Uh, or, or going naked into sub-zero temperature, nothing like, nothing like that. Now, why would you want to do that sort of stuff? It sounds masochistic, right? Like, why, why would I want to <laughs> experience pain and, and this, or at least discomfort? Yeah, I usually prefer multiple... to wear a jacket, but... Yeah, exactly, <laughs> right? And then usually people prefer a, a, a warm shower. And yeah. <laughs> um, but there are multiple reasons for doing this. One is to remind yourself or to show to yourself that you can actually deal with adversity. At some point or another in life, we will face adversity. We don't know when and we don't, want, we don't know what kind, but, you know, we will. There will be unpleasant things happening you know, to us. And the idea here is to sort of essentially get ready for the notion, the psychological notion that, you know what, adversity, you can deal with. You're, you're strong enough. You, you, you're, you're a sensible human being. You can deal with stuff. That's the first reason. The second reason is to um, appreciate the kinds of things you normally have and, and which you may take for granted. Modern psychologists uh, call this the uh, hedonic treadmill, this idea that we get used to certain pleasures and then, and then we take them for granted and we want every more ple- always more pleasures. Right? So, ah, I got my new iPhone. Uh, I'm all excited today. And then in a week, it's just a phone. And then, you know... Uh, Three months later, I have to buy a new one because otherwise I'm, I'm craving this kind of stuff. Right? So doing without things for on purpose for a short period of time actually resets the hedonic treadmill. Seneca says um, that um, uh, he was uh, fasting for a couple of days and then he got home and, and he just had a soup and stale bread. And he said that was one of the most wonderful meals I've ever had. <laughs> I'm sure. Right? Yeah. yeah, so it's so it's so it's, it's a it's an exercise in sort of re, resetting the hedonic treadmill. The third and last one is an exercise in gratitude, really, in a sense. That is, again, you remind yourself that normally you do have a warm meal. Normally, you can take a, a hot shower. Normally, there is no problem for you to you know pick up a coat and get out into the snow, right? But there are people out there who don't have these kinds of things. And uh, so taking it for granted in this, in this sense, it's really not a good idea. We should be thankful for this kind of stuff. And, um, and so these kind of exercises are essentially also exercises in gratitude, uh, in appreciation of what we actually have, uh, which we often sort of forget because we get used to them because of the hedonic treadmill. So the self-deprivation exercises are some of my favorite. Um, another good exercise is, this is a beautiful one, I think, uh, and it's found in Marcus Aurelius in the Meditations. And he says that uh, it's good for us, at least from time to time, to get up early in the morning 
get out of the of the house or apartment and go and see a sunrise and just meditate on the fact that we are connected to the cosmos at large, that there are things that have been going on for millions and millions or even billions of years, and they're always the same, and they're, they're beautiful, and we are a part of it, a very small part of it, but we're a part of it. So it's a, in a sense, it's what, you know, earlier we were talking about that sense of transcendence. Uh, an exercise like this is a sense of, it, it sort of rekindles your sense of transcendence. Now, some people kind of cheat and do it at sun, sunset. I mean, that's a little, a little too easy because sunset, it's, uh, you know, usually it's a reasonable time. You yeah, know, like you're, you're awake anyway. <laughs> that's what's up. You're awake anyway. No, no, do it at sunrise. There's a reason why Marcus does it at sunrise, yeah. not, not sunset. Um, it, astronomically speaking, is essentially the same thing. But um, it's a good exercise. And I do that uh, uh, when I travel at least, uh, at least once uh, when I, any, any trip that I take. And then I do it when I'm home every few weeks. Uh, and it really does, you know, make you feel peaceful and, and connected to the, to the universe at large. And on top of that, you get the practical benefit that you got up very early. So now you have a long day ahead of you. <laughs> it's, very, it's doubly practical. Exactly. It's doubly practical. So those are some of the exercises. There are some that are, that are more difficult. And then I would argue, uh, People should do it with care or, or maybe even under supervision. Uh, the one that comes up to mind uh, is the so-called premeditatio malorum, uh, which is fancy Latin for thinking about bad shit happening. <laughs> and uh, such a, this is actually a technique that it's also adopted by cognitive behavioral therapy. Hmm. Um, and it's useful for, uh, in, it's some kind, sometimes referred to as aversion therapy. It's useful if you have if you're really bothered by certain possible events or certain possible objects, if you have a phobia, for instance, or if you have a fear of some, some sort, it's very useful. And what it is, is you, uh, you visualize a particular situation. Let's say, for instance, let's get, take a practical example. Let's say that tomorrow morning you're up for a, for a uh, job interview. Right? And, of course, you really want to get your job and you're very nervous and, you know, and, and you're worried about what's going to happen and so on and so forth. So the first stoic principle that comes into practice, you know, into application there is the, is the dichotomy of control. Um, getting or not getting the job is not under your control. It's, it's up to somebody else. But doing your best, preparing in the best in, in order to do you know, your, the best possible interview you can, that is under your control. That, that's, that's the part that you can work on, right? But the premeditatio malorum uh, comes in when you say, okay, so tonight, maybe before before the job interview, let me close my eyes and sort of and visualize the situation, really sort of look at it as if I were in a movie over and over, play it over several times. And let me imagine the worst possible case that might actually take place, you know, the, mo- the worst possible scenario. Well, in this particular case, the worst possible scenario is just not going to, you know, you're going to embarrass yourself and you're not going to get a job. Well, fine. So is that the end of the world? No. You're, you know, being embarrassed before, you can survive that. Nobody's ever died of embarrassment. <laughs> um, and uh, you, you, it will be a learning experience. You will learn something more. And there will be other jobs and other, other chances. Right? So the idea is that by preparing your mind for the worst possible outcome, which, by the way, it's not likely because, in fact, very likely you're not going to embarrass yourself. You may or may not get the job, but you're probably not going to embarrass yourself. You know, presumably if you go for a job interviews because it's your job, it's your profession, you're prepared and so on and so forth. So right. it's very, mm-hmm. the worst possible case scenario is unlikely to happen. And in fact, it's very possible you will get the job. But the idea is that preparing your mind for the worst possible outcome uh, is, uh, is calming you down and also giving you sort of a, a way to navigate a potentially difficult situation. If, if in fact uh, that should happen. The reason I'm saying that people need to be careful about engaging in their premeditatio malorum is because sometimes it actually causes anxiety. This is just an empirical fact, right? Um, so cognitive behavioral therapists have found that although the exercise is usually helpful, sometimes it actually backfires. It, 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 you become more anxious instead of less. Hmm. That, that and if you sense. feel, yeah, and if you feel that way, just don't do it. <laughs> do something else, you know, stop and, and, uh, and engage in some other kind of exercise, you know, uh, 
deep breathing or, or you know, distract yourself with something else, talk to your friends, you know, do something else. So, um, so some of these, this is, again, it's empirical stuff. So sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, you know, it's, not, it's not a magic bullet. I actually really like the sunset idea. I'm, I think I'm going to try that yeah. out. And then one you mean last the sunrise. Yeah, sorry. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like I said, the sunrise. Um, right. <laughs> uh, one last question before I let you go. Um, mm-hmm. I was wondering if there's a book that you thought everyone just has to read and that you'd recommend to an audience. About stoicism? About stoicism, something that you read recently that was interesting, an old favorite. Yeah. Uh, of course, we're talking outside of my own book. Yeah, uh, no, so... I, of course, how, how do be, everyone should read How to Be a Stoic. But, uh... Of course, right. Um, that's an interesting question, actually, because uh, so there's there are, there's a number of them, and it depends on which level of involvement and which level of sort of uh, what, what your background in philosophy is. But I would say that right now, probably the best book that I, that, um, uh, I would uh, sort of suggest about stoicism is, uh, at an introductory level, is Don Robertson's uh, how to think like a Roman emperor, hmm. which is not out yet. It's about Marcus Aurelius, but it's not out yet. But I had a you know, sneak preview of it, and uh, and and Don is a really good writer. In fact, one of his previous books um, about Stoic happiness uh, is is the very first book that I wrote. Uh, sorry, that I that I read about modern Stoicism. So I would say that that's um, that's a really good way to, to get started. Uh, if, on the other hand, one prefers to go straight for the uh, original source, then I would say Seneca's Letters to Lucilius. Uh, there's a, a really nice new translation that came out a couple of years ago by the University, by the University of Chicago Press. Uh, it's very accessible. It's plain English. Seneca writes beautifully. And uh, it's, uh, it's 124 letters. They're short, so they're not, it's not really a large book. But in which he basically, little by little, explains the basics of, the, of Stoic theory and practice to his friend Lucilius. And uh, they, still today, after almost 2,000 years, they're, they're just gorgeous. They're, they make for really good reading. Uh, it's captivating prose. And at the same time, you're learning a hell of a lot of philosophy. Professor Pellucci, this was a really fun conversation. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, it was a pleasure, man.